Good afternoon, and welcome to the third episode of the SBJ Podcast. And yes, we still haven't figured out a catch your name yet. Nevertheless, I'm Lucas. I'm Kayla. And I'm Rory. This week, we had a great discussion with a panel of guests on some of the controversies associated with properties named after historical figures with questionable pasts. But before we get to that, Rui and I have your brief weekly update. First off, the biggest story of the week, and probably of the year thus far, is the death last Saturday of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Within hours of his passing, Republicans and Democrats alike were already thinking about his potential replacement. Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate Majority Leader, announced, quote, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. Yeah, liberals were furious to hear this and quick to berate the Republicans in the Senate for not allowing the current elected president to carry out his constitutional duty. But, to be clear, I mean, the Senate is not preventing Obama from nominating anyone. They've only announced that they will, in all likelihood, not approve any of his nominations, which happens to be within their constitutional authority. Yeah, we've seen a lot more of this type of constitutional hardball in recent years. Neither side wants to work with the other, so each side has looked to get as much done toward their own goals within the framework of the Constitution. Whether it's President Obama's executive orders, or now the Senate Republicans' goal to prevent Obama from filling the vacancy on the Supreme Court. Neither is unconstitutional, but both go against the conventional norms of our system of government. Yeah, and that's because this is all a byproduct of the unprecedented level of polarization in American politics today. The system wasn't designed to accommodate two sides that simply won't work with each other. Right, and so both the Democrats and the Republicans hope that if they win the presidency and the Senate in November, the Supreme Court will come with it, and they won't have to work with the other side. Yeah, and November's election is sure to be affected by all this. It sure is. The Senate is hoping that by holding out on filling the vacancy, they can motivate Republican voters to turn out. But the Democrats will also see that same benefit. With the Supreme Court up for grabs, the stakes in this election should bring a lot more previously hesitant voters on both sides out in November. But it's important noting that the court was always going to be up for grabs this November. Had Scalia not died, there would have been four justices over the age of 77 at the start of the next president's term. With the average retirement age for Supreme Court justices at around 78.4, it would have only been logical to assume that at least one, if not two, justices would retire or pass away within the next four years. Scalia's death simply made this issue more salient for a lot more people. But Scalia's death will have some pretty relevant impacts this year other than on the presidential election. Right. The court is now left with four solidly liberal justices, three solidly conservative ones, and one, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who leans conservative but occasionally sides with the liberal justices. It's very likely that the big cases this year, if not postponed, will end in 4-4 decisions, leaving whatever rulings were made in the lower courts in place. And moving on, we have one other story to cover this week and it centers around an altercation between two godlike figures. Yesterday morning, Pope Francis, referring to presidential candidate Donald Trump and his extreme proposals about the Mexican border, said, quote, a man who thinks about building walls and not of building bridges is not Christian. Yeah, Donald Trump wrote a response to this on Facebook, claiming that the Pope's questioning of his faith was, quote, disgraceful. He also wrote, quote, if and when the Vatican is attacked by ISIS, which as everyone knows is ISIS's ultimate trophy, I can promise you that the Pope would have only wished and prayed that Donald Trump would have been the president, because this would not have happened. ISIS would have been eradicated, unlike what is happening now with our all-talk, no-action politicians, end quote. 
At a press conference where he read the statement, he also added, The Pope is being told that Donald Trump is not a nice person, okay? Donald Trump is a very nice person, and I'm a very, I, I am a very nice person. And I'm a very good Christian, because the Pope said something to the effect that maybe Donald Trump isn't Christian, okay? And he's questioning my faith. I was very surprised to see it, but I am a Christian. I'm proud of it. Okay. It is pretty strange to see Donald Trump, the world's id, meet his match with the Pope, the world's superego. That's it for our update this week. If there's anything to take away from our two stories, it's that we can probably expect stranger ones to come as the year progresses. Yeah, it really is a wild year in politics. I mean, who knows? At this rate, maybe this time next year, Donald Trump will be the one nominating Scalia's replacement. Thanks, guys. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, yesterday I had the chance to moderate a panel on some of the controversies associated with properties named after historical figures with questionable pasts. I'd like to note that for this panel, we did not have the voice of any Native American students or faculty, an important perspective in the ongoing campus conversation. And in the future, we aim to increase the diversity within our panels and guest selections. Nevertheless, we had some fantastic guests yesterday. Let's take a listen. In the studio today, we have Jess Auerbach, a 2009 Rhodes Scholar and graduate student in the Department of Anthropology, Professor James Campbell, the Edgar E. Robinson Professor of United States History, and Harry Elliott, the Editor-in-Chief of the Stanford Review. Thank you all so much for joining us here today. I wanted to start off with a question pretty close to home, and that is, what are your thoughts on the recent bill that was passed by the ASSU Senate recommending to the administration that everything with Junipero Serra's name be changed? Professor Campbell, I'd like to throw this to you first. Yeah, I was kind of hoping that you would throw it to somebody else first. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm agnostic. I... Uh, I think one of the opportunities that we have right now, I tend to think of these moments when they come up on university campuses, and they come up frequently, and I've seen them a lot in a lot of different contexts. Um, they're teaching moments. They're opportunities not only for an institution and its members to learn about the history of the university, but also to reflect on their values, what it means to exist as a member of a community that exists across time. So. I think raising the question is extremely helpful and healthy, and I look forward to to learning. So yeah, my take on it is, firstly, that the pain that students feel should be recognized and should be acknowledged, uh, and that it's very, very important that a university creates spaces for minority voices to really be heard by the majority and to be engaged with uh, in many different ways. In this particular case, I feel that renaming everything uh, that has the title Sarah, uh, does pose a little bit of a risk of removing or, or kind of making it difficult to have a proper dialogue about this historical figure. And that in this case, I feel perhaps a symbolic renaming of one or two particular sites and a broad decision to not name anything new after him would perhaps be very helpful. To rename everything seems like it might prevent students of the class of 2027 from engaging in this kind of rich dialogue that's going on at the moment. I think the goals of the students who care deeply about renaming these buildings is uh, a noble insofar as they want to make Stanford an accommodating space for a, a large number of individuals, and I think that's a perfectly justifiable and commendable goal. I think the proposal as it stood last week was concerning insofar as it seemed not to appreciate the limited scope it could have. Realistically, the name of Sarah will continue to adorn mountains in California, continue to be 
uh, you know, relevant insofar as one of the missions he founded turned into the city of San Francisco, that Sarah Street can never be renamed. And the resolution itself showed a troubling lack of principled oversight as to the grounds on which the name was being removed. And I think that's something that if the student body does think seriously about these issues, it needs to come to a uh, comprehensive consensus on. But I don't uh, a priori oppose the measure. Thank you, Harry. Now, I wanted to go back to something you said, Jess, which is the risk of no proper dialogue. If we rename everything, maybe, that has to do with one person. And my question is, sort of, uh, what do you think that proper dialogue looks like? Is it what we're doing now? Or does it look like a lot more events and things to get people educated? What are you sort of envisioning here? Well, number one, I'm a grad student, so I'm a little removed from undergrad life. Uh, possibly rightly so and possibly wrongly so. Uh, and I don't want to overspeak. But I think that uh, there's a lot more that could be done at a university like this to contextualize the names of all the buildings. Um, and there's a lot that could be done to, to prepare for future naming of things. In terms of the discussion, now, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to really comment on that because I'm not in an undergraduate dorm. And I see from the outside a lot of difficult things around identity politics that allow some people to speak and others not to speak in certain ways. And I think that must be complicated to navigate. Uh, for all the people concerned. I'm hesitant on this, this issue because it's Native American rights and I am a South African. I just don't have enough personal experience to really be able to speak. Let me try to broaden the conversation out a little bit. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I think is characteristic of um, student politics, and I, I imagine when I say this, it's going to come across as avuncular at best and condescending at worst, but I, I, I say it with respect is there's a, a great impulse among people at this moment in their life cycle to try to see the, word, the world clearly. People are involved not only in these extraordinary uh, educational excursions to learn about the universe and human beings' place in it in a variety of different ways, but also to fashion a sense of their own personal identity, their political identity, their sexual identity, a moral identity, and just a host of different ways. And, and in that context, you know, there's a tendency, and I've seen it really, I've been, you know, I sort of went away to college 30 years ago and I never left. So um, I've seen it in lots of different guises of, of students to want to see the world clearly and to want to develop you know, very clear understandings that this is a good thing or this is a bad thing. And uh, a lot of what happens in the rest of your life is realizing the complexity and the mixedness of things. So uh, I had very little sympathy, I'll say frankly, with the ASSU resolution simply because it became quite clear to me that many of the people who were voting on it uh, didn't really know much about the subject. They might have consulted a Wikipedia page to learn about Junipero Serra. And, you know, that's really not how we make decisions. On the other hand, some of the uh, kind of, in a, in a way, equally knee-jerk condemnation of the vote or insistence that, you know, we can't change mm -hmm. these things strikes me as equally kind of predictable and unnuanced. The fact of the matter is, you know, there are a lot of institutions around the country that have debated this, have come up with a variety of different solutions. There's a very live debate currently, it's been for a long time at Yale University over the presence of Calhoun College. Um, there are some you probably haven't even heard of. You know, the, the biology building, the old biology building at the University of Alabama uh, is the Knott building, Knott Hall, named after Josiah Knott 
who was an antebellum pro-slavery theorist who argued that black and white people were separate species, not simply separate races. Um, you know, the idea that students at the University of Alabama, black students at the University of Alabama, you know, might be studying biology in um, that building, it seems to me there might be really good cause to think ch about changing that. Um, I'll give you a couple other examples just because I have them to hand. You know, the, the Middle Tennessee State University, the ROTC building, which was dedicated in the late 50s or early 60s in the midst of the civil rights struggle, is Nathan Bedford Forrest Hall, named after a slave trader and Confederate cavalryman who was later the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, you know, I'd be very, very hard-pressed to defend keeping those names. So it does seem to me that there are occasions when name changes are appropriate. On the other hand, I, I, I don't think that, that we are obliged or that it makes much sense to... Um, go through and periodically inventory every place name on a campus and try to expunge every, um, you know, every name that might unsettle us in the present. I think, if anything, you know, as Jess was just saying, the, the presence of such places can be useful provocations. So my own position, long way around of saying, is just it's a mixed one. These things are situational. They're circumstantial. What we see at a given moment might change over time. What different groups of people see might be different. And part of why we're at universities is precisely to grapple with those complexities rather than to adopt a knee-jerk, take it down, or a knee-jerk, leave it up stance. Absolutely. And, and going off of that a little, going back to what you said, Harry, you talked a little about this, this lack of principled oversight. And I'm sort of wondering what you guys think about how this might lead to the quote-unquote slippery slope argument. You know, if you start renaming one thing, pick one of these places or examples, you change it. What does that mean? Does it lead to this chaos where we have to rename everything? You know, Harry, what are your thoughts? I think it's important not to straw man the, the, the slippery slope argument, as I was afraid the, the, the Senate did when it was being discussed, which is to say the slippery slope is not an argument that kind of the Senate is this incompetent court that just can't help but strike down every other name after one bill. Rather, it's a question about fairness to other groups, because I happen to, uh, like, I think there are plausible reasons why, for example, Jordan or Tressida, both of whom had some connections to the eugenics movement, could be seen as deeply hurtful to a number of students. Um, there are examples of names all around the world or buildings for which people, with which people associate significant you know, emotional harm. And I think in those circumstances, the only fair way forward is to come up with a clear principle basis on which one particular name is legitimate to remove and one other name isn't legitimate so that other people can determine whether to bring their case forward or not. And not to do that um, is to do a disservice to the standards that exist, to say we'll adjudicate it on a case-by-case -case basis, I think does a disservice to future communities who might want to come forward with legitimate reasons and don't understand why their case is different or the same. So I think it's unfortunate, therefore, that the Senate wasn't willing to discuss in any level of detail coherent reasons why Sarah's name might be different from Jordan's or might be different from, say, Winston Churchill's on buildings in the UK, or indeed Rhodes, to the extent that his scholarship remains named that way. Thanks. So, okay, so Harry, I'm, I'm going to jump in there. And I, I hear what you're saying, but I think the broader issue here is not so much about policy, but about how is knowledge created and uh, implemented at an educational institution. And so for me, the issue with uh, 
all of this is well, who gets to write the rules in the first place? Who wrote the rules when Sarah was in power? Uh, and and who, who's writing the rules now? And so one of the issues with knowledge production is to make sure that many voices are brought to the table, many voices are heard. Uh, and today's policy is just as subject to that as any other piece of, you know, statues or building names or whatever else. Uh, and so I, I do feel one has to be a little careful there that this example and, and setting a precedent in this way might not actually shut down future discussions rather than opening them up uh, and create a new kind of identity politics um, that could be potentially quite damaging. You know, I think, I mean, you know, there's a the wonderful, it's a different context, but, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, at the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, this is the part that nobody ever quotes, but he basically talks about, you know, when people make, uh, people have a right to change governments, and, uh, but that you don't do so for light and transient causes, and that when you do, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind requires that you articulate what those reasons are. And, you know, so my own, my own sense here in, is often fairly conservative, if you will, that, that um, I don't think we want to scurry around. I think, you know, it's Balzac who said behind every great fortune is a great crime. And I suspect once we start digging, mm-hmm. uh, an awful lot of things on a lot of college campuses, um, will uh, the names will have attachments to certain things that we might not um, wish to identify ourselves with. So... There's different ways of handling this, it seems to me. There are certain things that, that I think reach thresholds of concern. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily possible to articulate a kind of clear, unshakable philosophical standard that will that will um, be consistent across time precisely because things change, uh, precisely because people change and the perspectives of people change and new people are entering universities. Mm-hmm. My own sense in general is, you know, use these things as teaching moments, right? I'm, I'm a big believer in signage, if you will, of, of keeping names but also identifying um, what the basis of that name is and what kind of concerns might uh, flow from it. I'll give you another great example. Um, there's a hall at the University of Mississippi called Vardaman Hall, which is named after James K. Vardaman, one of the most notoriously racist Mississippi senators and governors from the state of, uh, from the era of Jim Crow. I, I went to try to find some Vardaman quotes that I could use, and most of them use racial epithets that I'm not willing to use on this program. But um, this is a guy who said, the only effect of Negro education is to spoil a good field hand or to make an insolent cook, or who called the President Theodore Roosevelt a little mean, coon-flavored miscegenationist. That's a tame sample, right? Um, I can imagine that University of Mississippi, which is now uh, an integrated institution after the pitched battle of 1962 to make it so, that black students there would find studying in Vardaman Hall very painful and problematic. It's still there. Uh, There are ways in which you can identify it and sign it uh, in ways that actually surface this issue. One of the things that the University of Mississippi did is Vardaman Hall is now the home of the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation. So the work that's actually being done inside that hall is work that really is done deliberately to undo the legacy of Vardaman and his ilk. And, and to me, that, that is a you know, kind of richer way of being a university in the world than either to uh, erase every name or to, you know, in a kind of, again, kind of dogmatic way, defend keeping everything. Yeah, and there, I mean, I, 
echo what you say on many levels, but I think it's also important to remember this is a learning moment as well. So for all of us, you know, I'm a foreigner here and I encounter these parts of history that I know nothing about, but I feel like a lot of the American students also don't. Uh, and how does one use every single moment to learn to the maximum of one's ability, I think is important. And as I was walking over here, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to see the oral history project combined with the Stanford Digital Humanities project and start doing some kind of massive historic con contextualization that could begin with if, if, if each student uh, who cares about these issues did one monument or one piece of artwork, you, you would start having a collective richness that could become very important and very, very possible to learn about. Because at the moment, it can feel maybe a little daunting. Uh, it's not so easy to engage. But if Stanford wants to be very serious about its uh, historicization, and it's also attention to the humanities and, and so on, it would be great. Let's, let's put little iPhone tags on pieces of art that people can scan and then really engage with the history in a deeper way. But that's something that I think should be coming from undergraduates. Uh, and that, for me, is a much more productive discussion. Uh, or process of engagement than some of what, what I've seen in the last couple of years. Even though I must admit, I feel undergraduate engagement has become much deeper than it was when I first started here in 2010. And credit to that. That, that brings on a very important point, which is the, the context in which Sarah existed. To my mind and the mind of a number of people from the Catholic community at Stanford who have a difficult relationship with Sarah, but ultimately the most liberal pope in history chose to uh, beatify the guy only a year ago. Um, for a number of people on campus, the relationship they have with him and the relationship that they feel he had to the uh, colonization of California that occurred centuries ago is very complicated. There is some suggestion that Sarah was responsible for restraining the acts of Spanish imperialists. And in that situation, I feel uh, the most appropriate compromise is probably for people to learn more about Sarah's existence and name, to put up signs outside Sarah Hall saying, uh, outside Sarah and Jero, explaining the context in which his name existed, why he was given that name, the significance of the person and the potential acts that he committed. But I think the biggest risk and the reason why I find the analogies to Sarah being Hitler so problematic here is there is not some great American consensus that Sarah is one of the all-time evils of the world in a way that makes the removal of his name something that is applauded as a, and is sort of condemned as removing a moral monster from those names. Rather, I think the only way you can have the, that kind of continued discourse over him is to ensure that that name stays up and people continue having those discussions, as we talked about, into the class in 2027 or whatever, rather than potentially relegating it to the dustbin of history forever. Are there contexts in which you would authorize or approve um, changing a name? I mean, it, 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 would we, by 2027, be willing or able to say that... Um, that we didn't want to have a dormitory named after Juniper Serra, or in a sense, are we, you know, is he grandfathered in forever? I think if there were a very, if there were existed a strong university and plausibly national consensus that Sarah was an evil man, I'd be quite happy with taking that down. In the same way that if there existed a Hitler dorm, I would have no qualms, regardless of whether Hitler donated to the university or not, which <laughs> incredibly was a standard that was used last week, I would have absolutely no qualms with taking that name down. But when there exists sufficient malclarity that you have like a number of religious groups on campus saying, hold on a second, I think it's this is not an appropriate time to be acting. Okay, but then I think in this case, one of the things that makes Sarah specific so we're talking about the Native American community who are almost exterminated. And so there is no unified Californian Native, Native American community because so many of the groups that existed were fractured uh, by very different 
and difficult history. And so when you're talking about such a small portion of the population, is it likely, I don't, I don't have a figure of how many people in California identify as Native American off the top of my head, but say it's 5%. And is it really likely that 5% of people are ever going to be able to change majority opinion? And sometimes I think there are moments when a minority's pain should actually take precedence over a majority perspective. And and it's definitely one of these cases where the losers did not get to write history in this case. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think in some ways I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I don't know whether or not, you know, we can expect that that these kind of universal consensuses emerge. And, and I don't know necessarily know whether those are the, that 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 would be determinative even if such existed. I mean, I just in some ways echoing what Jess just said, there are, you know, again, take the case of African-Americans looking at a Josiah Knott Hall at the University of Alabama. There's a person who was a leading Southern scientist who denied fundamentally that they were a member of the same human species. Um, you know, even if the number of people at University of Alabama who were of African-American descent was very small as it was initially, and even if the vast majority, for example, of University of Alabama alumni wanted to keep it, I would think that a, that a small group of people might have a more compelling case, and not simply by virtue of their pain, but, um, you know, partly, you know, one of the consensuses I suppose or hope that we do have at a university is is wanting to is wanting to create a community um, that is open to all of us. Mm-hmm. And if there are people who find certain um, things that they are confronted with at that university as deeply wounding, I, I don't mean that they get to dictate always, you know, what stays up or what goes down, or that we must defer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to look, in fact, very carefully at who's arrogating to himself or herself the right to speak for whom. Mm-hmm. But I do think that at the end of the day, if if someone is telling me, and a substantial number of people are saying to me, I'm a member of this community with you, and this is very painful to me, I don't feel I'm compelled to necessarily agree with them, but I do feel compelled to take that position very seriously. And and so it's hard for me in that circumstance to, to feel a strong principled obligation to defend the, such a name in, in those circumstances. So, you know, part of what's happening right now is I, I actually haven't heard from a lot of Native American students here um, on this issue. I've heard from a few people purporting in one fashion or other to speak on their behalf. Um, I'd like to hear that, and I'd like to take that seriously, and I'd, and I'd, and I'd like to believe that I would be open to hearing and responding to their request, even if they represented a small group of people relative to the whole. That was a great discussion, and I think we'll definitely talk more on that later, but I wanted to move forward and kind of talk about this idea that you've all touched on a little bit, and that is this education versus inclusivity argument, and not not necessarily pitting them against each other, but what would you say is the almost the priority? I mean, is it to educate people and foster these conversations, or is it to bring more people into these conversations and really make sure we're hearing everyone's voices? I feel it's both, and uh, because you know we are a community of students, and the fact that there happen to be three white people talking to you right now uh, says a lot about voice and the institution that we're in, and I think we need to be very reflective about that and very careful about it. Um, but the whole point is we're supposed to be learning from our peers, whether we be grad students or professors or, or undergraduates. 
the reason Stanford puts such emphasis on attracting an international and diverse student body is precisely so that we're able to learn from one another as well as some kind of curriculum. And there, I mean, we also can think about the university curriculum and what that means in the first place. How, what are the structures of knowledge production that are facilitating this dialogue, but the broader dialogues that go around us? I think the it's, it's obvious to me there has to be a trade-off because if education was as open as possible and we terrified everyone away, there would be no one to discuss it. And if we decided to remove anything that people would find controversial, there would be nothing to discuss. So clearly there's a balance to be had. I think the most important thing when discussing these issues is to ensure that the the need to include someone does not hinder the ability to have discussion to the extent that that inclusion becomes meaningless. By that, I mean that the removal of Sarah's name, to my mind, creates the very real sort of medium term risk that people don't talk about the influence that Sarah had, because it's true that his actions had a substantial impact plausibly on the way that California looks, but I'm not convinced that that's something that people talk about when the hallmarks of that legacy are no longer there. And so if the question is how we best facilitate discussion, even if the barrier to that discussion is marginally higher, which I think we can mitigate by providing people with information and space in which they feel comfortable opening these kinds of things, I think the first priority has to be ensuring that people are going to continue talking about those things. You know, I, I, I agree, I think, with most of that. I, um, you know, I think that, let's, let's be honest, that the fact that we're having this conversation on this campus right now, um, we didn't have it five years ago or 15 years ago, it reflects the particular political moment that we're living through both on our campus and nationally. And internationally, absolutely. You know, you, as a Rhodes Scholar, have just seen the Rhodes Must Go movement both at the University of Cape Town and more recently at Oxford. Um, and uh, in this, in the case of Stanford in the United States, the, the emergence of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, the things that we have seen unfold before our eyes in Ferguson and elsewhere, a host of issues have sort of brought uh, a series of questions, as, as is often the case, uh, about a, what a university is and how a university should exist in the world, to a boil. I mean, you know, I often laugh when people refer to universities as uh, ivory towers. We're really not. We're almost like greenhouses in which, you know, the, the rays of the sun of the surrounding universe uh, come to a kind of fierce concentration in these institutions. And and so we've seen this, I mean, apropos of the remark that was just made in the, in the debate over speech on campus. We've seen it notoriously or spectacularly at Yale. We've seen it in the, sitting in the president's office at Princeton um, over the removal of Woodrow Wilson's name from various and sundry institutions at Princeton and so forth. And, and as always, I mean, and this is the part I think I'm in agreement with, it would be nice to imagine that there's a simple answer to these questions, but what we have here are... are ideas that we cherish that are in tension, if not in contradiction. We want universities to be places that are full of robust, open exchange that people can fearlessly express points of view. Uh, we also want universities to be places where uh, people feel the freedom to express their points of view. They feel a sense of membership and value and welcome. And, you know, it, it, again, I think those things are always and everywhere in tension. And I think that's the backstory to what has brought the Sarah issue uh, before us on this campus today. And, and again, it's partly why my own sense of this is my, my resistance t 
to giving a kind of straightforward answer, remove it, don't remove it, uh, I'm for safety or I'm for speech. I think what we really need to do as a community is is grapple with these issues and recognize the ways in which, notwithstanding you know, our, our tendency and political moment that we live in to stereotype and stigmatize people who don't agree with us, that we all actually share certain kinds of values that we find in tension with one another. Absolutely. And you, I think you mentioned Cape Town, Professor Campbell, as one of your examples. And just to broaden this conversation a little outside of the scope of Stanford, because, you know, this happens everywhere and this is an issue everywhere. I wanted to ask, there's the Roads Must Fall movement, a movement that originated at the University of Cape Town. How does it and other movements like it sort of figure into the historic struggles for minorities and their liberation? And I'd like to start with Jess on this one. Sure. So, I mean, it's worth saying that I'm an uh, alumnus of the University of Cape Town and that I was very involved in student leadership uh, while I was there from 2005 to 2008. Um, and, and then, of course, received the Rhodes Scholarship. And so... This last year has been very intense for me, watching from outside and sometimes from inside how these discussions unfold. The first thing that's worth notice, uh, noting is that the Rhodes Must Fall began when a student covered a statue of Cecil John Rhodes at the University of Cape Town in human feces. And that was a very powerful statement. It was not the first time that people had protested against that statue. When I was an undergrad, I remember sitting on the undergraduate senate and discussing whether or not we should remove the statue. So this is not a new discussion. However, I think it was really important that the student took a slightly more extreme action because what had been happening is we'd been finding exactly the same responses back to us. You know, history must be kept in context. Uh, When we brought it up at undergrad senate, no, 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 we can't take away the statue because... Uh, we don't want to erase history. We can't take. We, we can't change the road scholarship because we don't want to erase history. And I think many of us are sympathetic uh, to that view, but in this case, this particular statue was very, very painful because everybody has to walk past it. And this is a, a country where it's not minorities like we're talking here. It's absolute massive majority of people who have been historically disenfranchised who feel a deep sense of sadness when they walk past the university every day. And the, the location of that statue, it's called, kind of like putting something right in the middle of the main quad, although I don't know how many people go into the main quad anymore. Um, but, but, you know, it's really not something that is avoidable. No, it's utterly inescapable. <laughs> yeah, 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 you cannot get, get away from it. But Rhodes Must Fall was never about the statue. Rhodes Must Fall was using the statue as a catalyst to in, ignite a very powerful discussion about disenfranchisement, about the curriculum, about the ways in which knowledge is produced and reproduced, uh, in ways that have not actually led to the radical change that South Africa has needed. And so if you look at South Africa today, today in many ways, it's not that different to how it was under apartheid. There's a lot of de- different litigation, but the practical everyday lived experiences of the majority of South African citizens are pretty, pretty grim. Uh, and this is what that movement's about. And so it very rapidly morphed from Roads Must Fall to a movement called Fees Must Fall, which was all about providing free and accessible education to South Africans, um, to a movement the end outsourcing, which was about taking care of the workers' rights on campus, uh, and to a host of other sort of fractured subdivisions. And that is what Roads Must Fall is about. The statue, in a sense, is the least of it and almost always has been the least of it. As for the scholarship, uh, again, Roads Must Fall needs to be understood as slightly separate to redress roads, which has been getting a lot of attention, in the, in, particularly in the United Kingdom. Uh, and that's to do with the statue of Roads at Oriel College. Uh, and that has to do, I think, a lot more with the ways in which Britain continues to reify a certain kind of colonial history. Uh, And I want to give the others a chance to speak, but I think it's worth noting that uh, this debate has been enormously powerful and enormously useful, but also that it's not the first time it's happened. So 
one of the things that South African Rhodes Scholars have to do that uh, is not the case for any other Rhodes Scholar is when we take the award, when we accept it, we give a vow uh, in front of a constitutional court judge and a host of other important people saying that I will serve my country. I, will, I understand the historic legacy of where this money comes from, and I swear on my oath to give back either in person or in kind, in kind some sort of financially or socially or whatever way is appropriate to the country that has allowed me this opportunity. Um, and I know that amongst the South Africans, many of us feel a certain degree of frustration and resentment that the Americans in particular don't have to go through a similar process. Uh, not because we don't want to do it. We all do want to do it. And you don't take the scholarship if you don't want to do it, because it's something that we live by and we kind of monitor one another in the community. Uh, and there's actually quite a lot of judgment of people who sort of be like, peace out, I'm working on Wall Street. Uh, that is not something that many of us feel is appropriate. And people call one another out. Um, I feel like more of those kind of discussions uh, would be very helpful and powerful in all these contexts, rather than saying, let's just change the name and then pretend it didn't happen. Um, so I'll leave it at that for now. Um, I think the the Rhodes issue gets to the heart of where this, this, this becomes really relevant, which is that the concern, to my mind, with the removal of Sarah as opposed to Rhodes is... The reason why the statue got defaced, as I understand it, in Cape Town was because of structural concerns about the way that um, minorities continue to be treated. Majorities. Majorities. That's right. No, no, no. No, 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 for the oppression that people face on a day-to-day -day basis. I think I would hope that's a fair characterization of the, the sort of the way in which the statue became the, the focal point for people's um, outrage, which then spiraled into political discussions about how we can make the lives of people better. My worry with the Sarah issue is it has happened independent of the ways in which Native Americans at Stanford can discuss the ways that they feel um, Histo feel historical injustice has been done to them and the ways in which Stanford can make their education better. And I would object substantially less to the Sarah measure, actually, if it had been done in a context of we face these great injustices and this statue and these, not these, this statue, this name and this constant prominence causes us reminders of those injustices and great pain and we need to focus on those measures. Instead, my concern is that the, the political discussion has been purely about the removal of the name, and there has been no impetus afterwards to try and make efforts towards the Native American community. If anything, I think many people on campus have decided that, you know, their duties towards Native Americans, shamefully, people have decided that that's, that's their lot done, essentially, that they've uh, fulfilled their duty and that the problem that people are facing is gone. And to the extent that that becomes the norm, I think that does an unacceptable injustice to Native American community, to a Native American community at Stanford that deserves much more from us. So if the impetus of the measure is that there are policy changes that are needed and the statue or the naming is where that comes to a head, I think that is a much more legitimate basis than I do not like the statue independently. We will remove the statue and then we will move on. Absolutely. Professor Campbell, do you want to respond? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, what you... What you concede in that, and I agree with you, is that um, that we have a particular obligation to consult the opinions of Native American students on our campus, um, and I think and I, and I think I agree with that. I, I'm not sure that the issue simply of acknowledging and respecting their presence on campus means that we have to identify only issues 
about Native American oppression or injustice on our campus. I mean, there's a, a broader history here. I mean, the campus itself sits on a village, an Oshlon Native American village, or the ruins thereof. Um, but I, again, I'm not um, I'm not somebody who thinks that who you that everything has to come down. You know, one of the experiences I had earlier in my career, a decade or more ago, I was teaching at Brown University, and Brown had an African-American woman president appointed, Ruth Simmons, and uh, she appointed a committee, which I actually chaired, to investigate and publicly disclose and organize public programs to facilitate discussion on the university's historical relationship to slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. And uh, it really was quite an inspirational period in my life to actually see a university acting like a university, and a university not simply um, to try to either hide this fact or to simply, you know, sandblast a few names of off, off of buildings and be done with it, but to actually recognize that these are precisely the kinds of issues that universities exist in order to grapple with. But one of the stories she told, she told a reporter this, and, and uh, the reporter didn't actually get it. I remember reading it and realizing the reporter had kind of missed it, but she talked about coming to Brown to be the president and sitting in her office in University Hall building that was built in part with enslaved labor, and sitting beneath this large portrait of the first president of Brown University, James Manning, who had arrived when it was then the College of Rhode Island, um, to take up his job with his slave in tow. And she said, you know, I sit under this portrait every day, and uh, it occurs to me that James Manning and the other people who founded this university could never have imagined that I was sitting here. And that that has something very, very important, that fact has something very, very important to tell our students, and that part of what we're trying to do here is to engage our students in a reflective discussion about that fact. And the way the reporter construed that remark was essentially is that here was an angry black woman who was mad, and it was exactly the opposite. What she was really trying to say was that universities actually have the capacity to outgrow us, right? They have the capacity... To if they but have the courage to live by the values that they profess, they actually have the courage to surprise us, to outgrow the expectations of their founders. And indeed, if we but have the courage to live according to the values that we profess, these institutions will become something different than we can imagine. I mean, Leland Stanford was the governor of California territory, the state of California, rather, during a period when there was a systematic attempt to exterminate Native American people. Uh, it probably never occurred to Leland Stanford that someday there would be a couple hundred Native students on the campus that, of the university that he founded. And it probably never occurred to him that some of those students would demand the removal of the name of Junipero Serra, and the name of Sarah Street was in fact given by the Stanfords. And you know, I actually think that there is a pretty, in the spirit of what Ruth Simmons tried to say long ago about James Manning, there's actually something pretty powerful in that story for us about um, reminding us about our sacred obligation at a university like this is actually to try to live according to the values that we profess. And if we do that, uh, we may end up in places that we at this point don't imagine. Thank you. And again, kind of going off of that, I wanted to ask a question to sort of take this discussion into the future. And that is, should we sort of start this process of avoiding memorializing people at all? Just in case, you know, 
how do we account for the actions of someone in the present maybe becoming morally condemnable in the future? You know, and what do we do about this today? I was going to say you pick only saints except for Junipero Serra as a saint, and here we are. I mean, let's be realistic. If somebody's going to give millions and millions of dollars and say, hey, Stanford, I'm going to give you 100 million bucks, but you have to put my name or my kid's name on a building. Stanford is going to find it hard to say no. And I think we have to be frank about the system that we were in when Stanford was founded and the system that we're in now. And not that much has changed. Uh, However, I do think there may be something helpful that could come out of undergraduate politics in terms of students gathering together and saying, well, what as undergraduates do we feel are the principles by which we'd like to see new buildings named? Because Stanford is building stuff all the time. Uh, You may not be able to change the names of named buildings after rich people. But maybe you want to say there are other values that we'd like to see reflected on this campus. Uh, And that, for me, would be a much more inclusive and constructive set of discussions for a place like the undergraduate and the graduate student senate um, than stuff that necessarily is backwards looking and kind of engages with a whole bunch of mostly dead white people. And there there actually (laughs) was a a dimension of that in the, not in the ASSU resolution as much as an open letter that the the executives of the ASSU published in the Stanford Daily. And what I was quite taken of in that uh, letter was it wasn't simply about removing Sarah, and indeed it left mm-hmm. that as an open question, mm-hmm. but it also said that this was an opportunity for the university to learn something about its history, to learn yeah. about the presence of Native Americans here before the institution was founded, about the presence of Native Americans who had who had come and studied at our university. Mm-hmm. And, and then it offered us an opportunity to rededicate um, other places in the names of other people and recover aspects of our history that have been lost to us. And, and that, I think, is a much more, as you say, hopeful or forward-looking way of engaging with this question. I think that the take-home from this is that history is phenomenally complicated. Come on, The university, uh, if a university makes a decision to memorialize someone, especially now, it is because in the context of the time in which they live, unless they donate a lot of money, in which case I think they're independent of this discussion, if we choose to name a building after a president, a political figure, a rights activist or whatever, it's because we think they overall stood out in the arc of history as it stands now as doing things that are commendable. And in that case, I don't think we should shy away from commending people now for doing those kinds of things, especially if that's something that is that trades off with removing people who we no longer think are relevant to Stanford's history, something which, providing it's done on a majority consultation, um, I don't, you know, principally oppose. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 I think the important thing to consider there, though, is that it's presumably, therefore, true that when we name people in the past, people made a similar value judgment. I don't believe that people were kind of running around just looking for something to name all of their buildings after, so much there was some important historical reason why they decided these people were significant. And to that extent, I think the most relevant thing that people who are interested about this can do is understand why people in the 1900s thought that Sarah was such an important person to memorialise. Good, bad, complicated. Um, His legacy is indubitably more sophisticated than any of us can speak to in 90 seconds. Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the things, in fact, that's already come out of this is we're in the process, uh, I know the Stanford Introductory Studies is in the process of mounting an introductory seminar on Junipero Serra so that students can begin to learn about him. I mean, I I would qualify what you said in just one way, or one slight way. There certainly aren't, again, this is just my 
the fact that I'm a historian who thinks about the politics of memory in the American South, there are perverse examples of naming things, right? I mean, I mentioned earlier naming the ROTC building at Middle Tennessee State Nathan Bedford Forest a Hall, named it after the founder of the Ku Klux Klan, and that's right in the heart of the battle over civil rights. And that is a deliberate attempt of one group of people to say something to another group of people and their aspirations that was injurious. And I think in those circumstances, um, names like that have very, very little claim to being grandfathered in or to our respect. The Calhoun College in Yale, you know, that those colleges were built and named in the 1930s. So the fact that you know, that that decision was made, you know, the leading pro-slavery uh, politician in American history, the man who famously said in the halls of the Senate that slavery was a positive good, for Yale to name a uh, college after John C. Calhoun in the 1930s it was, even in retrospect, shocking to me. And, and again, that would be a case where I think the name has very little uh, claim on us or to our deference. Um, there are others that I think that are where I, I would agree with you. I also think, you know, it's just, you know, you're absolutely right that human beings are complicated and that none of us is a saint. And if nothing else, you know, one of the things I hope will come out of this is when we discover that our forebears acted evilly, I think the first impulse of a lot of people, I wouldn't say a lot of us, you know, is to point our hands angrily at them, point our fingers angrily at them. And what we are really doing is using our other hand to pat ourselves on the back for our own superior moral judgment. And one hopes rather the opposite. And this is, just amplifies what you said earlier. You know, one hopes that these experiences actually become opportunities not only for us to learn about our past, but for self-discovery and for reflection on the way in which we too are implicated uh, in things that not only future generations, but we ourselves think are immoral. And, um, you know, that, that's what one hopes these kinds of um, these kinds of occasions, these kinds of discussions on campus can do, and that's why one hopes that the conversation we're having on this campus might continue to unfold in the kind of spirit I hope we're modeling here, as opposed to a kind of you know kind of strictly adversarial thing that we're seeing on on the national political stage right now. It's an opportunity for us to act like a university, and those are. Uh, those never go amiss. I think we have time for one more question. So I wanted to sort of play devil's ad- advocate for this last minute here and, and ask, what, what do you think we would change about this discussion if we were saying for the sake of argument that Sarah did donate a great amount of money to Stanford? I mean, let's put him in this big donor position and say that we named all these things after him because he gave money. So how do you think that would reframe the conversation? And, and how do we measure monetary contribution against psychological damage or discomfort? And should we? I, I would hope very much that money doesn't matter at all. I would hope that if somebody gave a lot of money um, and that money is traced in some fashion to something that we find abhorrent, I, I think that money shouldn't make a difference in the discussion that we have. It is possible, and indeed there are some cases of this in other universities at various times, in which donors then withdraw the money. Right? This has happened uh, in some southern universities, again, where money that was given by the Daughters of the Confederacy, a neo-Confederate organization, to create Jefferson Davis Hall. When there were efforts to change the name, they said, well, we're taking the money back. Um, and I would hope at a place like Stanford, if we ever found ourselves in that situation, we'd give the money back. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree. Rhodes hasn't been protected by the fact that he gave the money. 
Um, although I say that, but then at Oriel College, he was at Oriel. He wasn't so at, at Oriel. He precisely was, and for me, that has been the one deeply problematic thing about this whole. Well, there have been several. Partly the way the British media has, has treated um, some of the, the individuals concerned, but also uh, what happened at Oriel was that the college received letters from its major donors saying that if you take the statue down, we will withdraw our funds. And the college acquiesced to that and said, okay, cool, we're not taking the statue down. And in fact, they canceled the debate and discussion process. They'd given six months for it, and they said it's actually no longer necessary. For me, that is terrible. Uh, and that looks very badly on, on Oxford University as a whole, looks very badly on Oriel College, and it denies the legitimacy of a very important discussion and kind of says we've bought out the money. That has not happened in the Rhodes Scholar community. It has not happened in South Africa. Um, and, and I don't think it will. And I, I feel like as long as there are people who are engaging with the historical realities, it's unlikely that anybody's ever going to be kind of completely silenced. And, and I hope that continues. I agree with Jim completely that uh, should that ever happen at Stanford, Stanford has every ability to say we don't need your cash. Thank you very much. Uh, and that is important. Yeah. I think I would say, sort of wrapping this one, I think I'd say two things. The first thing is that money should not make a moral difference in the condemnation we place on people. And I often think that that's used in the Sarah example, unfortunately, as a cop-out. He wasn't a donor. As as to why Sarah is different from people in the past who did things we don't like. And I think it's it's unfortunate in some ways that Sarah didn't contribute to university because that would force people to come up with a better moral standard rather than this one, which I just think is is unjustifiable and does a disservice to movements like Rhodes Must Fall by Im- implying that they are less legitimate than the cause of Sarah just by virtue of the fact that Rhodes had some very some plausibly illegitimately gained money, which he puts towards universities. Um, the second thing to say here, though, is at the point where we decide that there should be no difference made on money, I think we then have to understand why universities might want to adopt caution in renaming buildings in the first place, which is to say that the money gained by people donating to Stanford has, the, the, Stanford, the Stanford Review published an article on this literally yesterday, so it was reasonably timely, has an incredible impact on tens of thousands of students at the point where they're able to come to the university in the first place. They have vastly better facilities to work with. We can make college tuition free or at least substantially easier for large numbers of people. And those are benefits that, you know, tangible benefits to large numbers of people in the long run that can't be marginalized on the basis that we don't want to talk about money. Um, But in that case, I think there are plausible reasons why universities might not want the students, students to have the power to change building names on a whim, because it will disincentivize people from donating in the long run. And that's not to say that that is necessarily the correct moral stance to take, but rather that a balance has to be sought where some level of, of, of permanence should be attached to those building names in order that people feel their donations are appropriate. And the moral assessment of those people should be as much as possible made at the point of donation rather than later. So the ultimate take home should be that we should set up clear standards now for the donors that we take such that they can be secure in their donations and there can be clear and consistent standards between those people we name after buildings who did donate and those people who didn't and don't differentiate between the two of them. I think that's a good point. The last comment I'd like to make is just to sort of request more inclusivity in all the discussions. And so just as we're conscious here of asking three people who distinctly do not come from the Native community talking about something that is really of historical and current interest, particularly to people from the Native American community, uh, In all dialogues at Stanford, it's very easy to just talk to people who look and think like you. And I guess my hope coming out of this is for a broader and more inclusive discussion. And it's difficult to make friends with people who one feels are different sometimes. Uh, But 
that undergraduate students and everybody else really, really makes an effort to bring others into the room. I think that's the only way that we get to have a richer discussion before you get to Senate. Never mind the Senate. That's the sort of these kinds of resolutions, the damage is already done. Uh, and I think in people's social worlds and the intellectual worlds, if they can start reaching out a little bit more sincerely um, as often as possible, it would go a long way. Well, I want to thank you all for such a powerful discussion. I think we talked about a lot of important issues and considerations that were really interesting and came out with a lot of takeaways that hopefully we can bring forward into future discussions. I really hope that Stanford continues to have these conversations, as I'm sure you do as well. So thank you again for your participation. We really appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Join us next Friday for your weekly dose of politics, news, and insightful commentary.